Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16? We've just been singing about how God makes us strong. If ever was a time when the church of Jesus Christ, that's you and I, need to be strong and to stand up for him in the public arena despite opposition, that time is now. And I think the key, or one of the keys to this, is to rediscover who Jesus really is. A week ago, last Sunday night, I began a series, Rediscovering Jesus. If you didn't get that message, you can pick it up online. Now, Rediscovering Jesus. Today, we're going to look at Jesus as Messiah. Now, I've got a take-home message for you. I want, to, once I want you to get out of this message. Here it is. Jesus Christ, your cornerstone. You can personalize it. Jesus Christ, my cornerstone. Something I can depend on. Something that shapes my life. That I can build my life on and can be sure about. Let's read Matthew's Gospel 16, verse 13 and onwards. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Strange. And then, of course, Jesus goes on to explain what kind of Messiah he is and how he was going to accomplish the coming of the kingdom of God. As the Son of Man, he was going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. He was going to be crucified, but on the third day, he was going to be raised again. Now, Peter steps in at that point, as we shall see a little later on, and says, don't be so silly, Lord. I've got a better plan for you. This week, one of our members, one of Amanda's primary 12 women, who exemplary leader of cells, very strong, high position in the national health, very responsible position, works extremely hard, talented in lots of different directions, published a children's book entitled Rebecca and the Strangest Garden. Intriguing for seven years upwards. And uh, Vi Thomas booked a venue, an exclusive venue in the center of London, to launch the hardback and paperback version of this book, already available online and on Amazon. Now, she, she launched it, and, and, and she invited her friends, her, her work colleagues, friends that go right back from school days, and her church friends, invited them to this reception at a wonderful time. And in the middle of this, she clearly testified that Jesus Christ is her saviour, and that she's a Christian. Now, what an amazing courage that was. First of all, not just to pursue interest, and wonderful that people have amazing interests, writing children's books and things like that, but to see it as an opportunity to share her faith, it, it done in all wisdom, with discretion, but with courage. Reminds me of what Jesus says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And today, in the midst of what's happening in our society, there is a tendency for us as Christians to be timid and to hold back. But it's not the time to hold back. We need to stand up for our faith. 
One of the things that I think about when I think about modern Christianity, and I'm not being critical, but you must understand, I have to begin to make examination and say, what can we do, Jesus? How do you want us to lead at such a time as this? And I, I find actually that today, the standard of discipleship is quite low. And I'm wondering, why was it in the very early church that there was a generation and generations to come from the very early church of radical disciples? One of the reasons is they were so close to the events. When they said Jesus died, there were witnesses. When they said Jesus was raised again, they were witnesses. They knew that Jesus Christ actually lived, that he said the things that he was supposed to say, that he did the things that are recorded here for us, where we are so far away from that. Now, while we have faith and we will say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we, we don't have Peter's experience because he struggled with the meaning of it and it's given to us on a plate. We have generations and centuries of Christian thinking, theology, confessions and creeds. Very God, a very God, second person of the Trinity. And all of this is handed to us on a plate and somehow we hold it more in our minds than it grips our hearts. And I think one of the ways out of this is to go back to the New Testament and rediscover Jesus. In my article in Revival Times, I set out some of the reasons for that, and I'm not being insulting. I just think that today, for many reasons, we have a kind of view of Jesus in our minds, and we're helped by our society, or rather pushed by our society, to keep that as a matter of private opinion. Not a matter of public fact, it's a matter of private opinion. And so our religious views are tolerated to an extent, if we keep them to ourselves, don't try to share them with others, and keep it to the margins of society. They call this today the privatization of religion. For we live in a secular world that wants religion pushed to the margins. And there are exceptions to this. Those who have religious minority, those who come from the religious minorities, they are a protected species. But those who believe in the age-old message of the gospel, we are an endangered species when it comes to public life. So these are the difficulties that we have of going from this idea of this concept of Jesus as being this spiritual person and, and it's in our hearts and so on. And we struggle with the facts of history. We don't think of Jesus walking around with dirty sandals in the midst of, of, of Palestine. We don't really see him. Those are the kind of stories. But we have to rediscover that the Jesus of, that we worship is a real Jesus. Not only is he alive now, living amongst us by his spirit, but in those days, he was a real person and the real story and the things that happened, including the story that we're reading today, actually happened. And this incident took place at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now you see, Matthew intends us to understand that this actually happened, that it happened at a certain place, at a certain time, and at a key point in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, this is the turning point of our gospel story. From here onwards, Jesus actually changes his ministry, withdraws a little bit from the crowds because the events are rapidly unfolding, taking Jesus to the cross. And one of the reasons he said, don't tell people that I am the Christ, was that he didn't want to precipitate God's plan and God's program. So it's a turning point, it's a very strategic and significant point in the ministry of Jesus. It happened at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, not only does this locate us to an exact spot that took place in this northern Galilean town, heavily populated by Gentiles, Syrians, and Greeks, this Grecio-Roman city has a strong religious history. We are told that this was the very place where the people of Israel encountered the worship of Baal. Baal worship was very strong in this area. What is Baal worship? That is the Canaanite religion 
that the Canaanites had when the Israelites came and conquered Canaan. It was a sophisticated system of religion, polytheistic, complex, touched every part of their lives. And at the head of the polytheistic pantheon was a male deity and a female deity, and this deity had kids. And Baal was one of the kids. Baal was a strong man, you know, muscly man, apparently not, not very bright, um, uh, and got himself all kinds of problems, and he had to rely on his warrior sister to get him out of problems. Well, that's the kind of background. It's a center of Baal worship. Later on, in the Greek period, this was the center of the worship of the Greek god Pan. Then in the Roman period, the infamous Herod the Great built a marble temple to Caesar Augustus. So now it was the worship of the imperial or the imperial cult worship. Caesar divine, or at least son of the divine. Caesar Augustus, interesting story. He was originally Gaius Octavius, and he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, very prominent, and after Julius Caesar's death, the family tried to shore up the reputation and decided, well, let's, let's make him a god. So they gave him divine honors. And uh, Julius Caesar had adopted Gaius Octavius, and Gaius Octavius succeeded Caesar as the next Caesar, and he became Caesar Augustus, son of the divine. So Caesar Augustus, son of God, Ah, interesting, the very place where Peter sees the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, already we're into a competing situation. One of the professors of early church history, I remember this is stuck in my head, no use now apart from sharing it in a sermon, didn't get me much in my exam, but anyway, he said that the early church did not step into an empty stage, but into an arena of warring sects and rival faiths. Wow, that's the first century. Sounds like the 21st century. When we stand up and proclaim Jesus or talk about Jesus or confess him, it's not a vacuum out there. There are competing forces and various religious and philosophical views. And how is it that we can get a hearing in the midst of this cacophony of confusion? Rival claims to revelation. Different religions. How do we get it? exactly the way they got it in that very early time. And so when Jesus encourages them to meditate and to think on who he really is, that first century question is still a vibrant and vital question for us today. In fact, I can't think of any more important question than to inquire after the identity of Jesus. Now, this kind of inquiry has brought lots and lots of different kinds of responses in that day and in this day. In that day, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Very interesting. There were opinions about Jesus even then. What is interesting to me that the historical Jesus on this planet didn't have a neon sign saying, here I am, God has arrived. People had to come to their own conclusion concerning who he was, listen to him teach, ask him questions, listen to his parables, inquire after him, find out what he was doing and why he was doing what he was doing because Jesus' clearest proclamations about himself came by his actions. And so us today, as we seek to make Jesus known, our actions count, our words count too, but our actions count. First question, who do they say that I am? Now it's a matter of just reporting. Well, I, I heard them talk the other day. Uh, what did they say? They, they say, well, who are you? You, you? you are one of the prophets. You're John the Baptist. John the Baptist come from the dead. That's a bit weird. Uh, or, or come back from the dead. Or Elijah, that's very eschatological, the prophet of the end times. So already now we're into a bit of discussion about, about Jewish views at that particular time. But basically, he was like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Interesting. Aren't there people today who say Jesus is, is nothing more than a, a prophet, a moral teacher, a religious teacher? There are some very bizarre views. I'll share one in a moment. But that's the idea. 
The idea that Jesus is not really very, very special. He may be a great leader spiritually and religiously, but he's just one of many. But the confession that comes from Peter's lips sets him in a category above all else. What is interesting to me today is how people will believe anything other than the truth. Thank you very much, Mr. Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, nothing new, based on an earlier wacky book, 1981, Holy Blood and Holy Grail. It's a bit amusing, a little bit of, um, of uh, you know, connection with France. And so the, the Holy Grail, uh, traditionally, it's this rather pointless task of trying to find the original cup used in the Last Supper. Oh, no, 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 say investigators. Holy Grail. You see, you've got to go back to the French. This is Saint Grial. Saint Grial. Uh, but you just got the G in the wrong place. Not Saint Grial, Holy Grail, but Saint Grial, royal blood. <gasps> royal blood. So that means Jesus married Mary of Magdalene and they had kids living in France and, and the rest is false history. But anyway, here's the point. They'll believe anything. So what is the historical basis of this? Zilch, none. Well, where do they get it from? Gospel of Thomas and other esoteric texts based on a philosophy and religion of the day, which is called Gnosticism. These texts were discovered around about 1945 in Egypt, and uh, uh, they, they were dated at 350 AD, and maybe copies of originals that might have been around the second half of the second century. Second half of the second century, over 100 years after Jesus lived. Why go there? Why not go right back to the beginning? Why not go back to the Gospels? Oh, the Gospels were fanciful inventions. We can't trust them. Says who? Says people who've done research? No. The Gospels were written within living memory of the events. I quoted on Sunday night one of the radical scholars who is not a particular evangelical that has the conviction that all the Gospels were written by AD 70. And that means Mark's Gospel, AD 45. Now, I, I can't say that for certain, but it's a very interesting point. Certainly, all the Gospels, including John, would have been written by AD 90. That is within a generation, within living memory. And these people who told the Gospels and recorded the Gospels carefully researched. Think about Luke. He says, I have searched out these things, used many sources, and I'm giving you a factual account of the Gospels. And what's more, there were other people alive who could have said, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. It was passed on by word of mouth, written down in various forms, gathered together fairly quickly into Gospels, which give us an historically accurate account of what Jesus did and said. But no, no, people say, no, we won't bother about that. We'll go to the real Gospels, which are 100 years later, and have nothing whatsoever to do with the Gospel of Jesus. Let me just, as I'm on this subject, let me just give you an example. Gnosticism is a philosophy, an esoteric philosophy, and you are saved by escaping from your body through wisdom and knowledge. And the Gnostic gospel teaches that the God who created the world is not the God of the Bible, but an evil being. So do you think Jesus, who stood in the, in the tradition of all the great Hebrew prophets and proclaiming Yahweh, the God of Israel, is suddenly now going to talk about the God who created the world as an evil God? Why, it's an absolute nonsense. But it makes good television and novels and makes people a lot of money when they put it into movies. So these opinions, be very, very careful. Always reserve the right to criticize the critics and know what you believe and know why you believe. And I want us as Kensington Temple to be very sure of our facts and to know that when we talk about Jesus, it's not a Sunday school invention. It's not some, mystery, some fantasy or some nice way of thinking of things that we keep to ourselves. Not merely a matter of opinion. If Jesus came and lived and did what he did and said what, he sa what, he, what they say he said, if that is true, then it is true for everybody. Not just my opinion. Oh, how nice for you, Colin. I wish I could be like you. In fact, I wish I could have a faith like you, but I have a different faith. You used to yours and me's to mine. Okay, people have a right to believe uh, what they choose to believe, but that doesn't mean to say what they choose to believe is right. It has to be tested. 
One of the things I want us to do is to follow a, a, a version of Socrates when he, when he said, an unexamined life is not worth living. Colin Dye wants to change that a little bit and say, an unexamined faith is not worth having. You need to know how to give a reason for the hope that is within you. How else can you be courageous and say, I will follow Jesus. He is the cornerstone of my life. He will, I'll found my life on him. I'll define my life by him. I'll shape my life privately and publicly by him. No matter what the cost. Amen and amen. So, Jesus then points the question, which is now where he was really headed. So who do you say that I am? I can imagine teacher coming to ask the class a question and this question not intentionally but certainly reveals the ignorance of the people in the class that's happened to me on many occasions on both sides <laughs> as a student and as a teacher and what happens is that people look at their shoes suddenly they're very interested in their shoelaces and I think the disciples will look down at their sandals oh, who's going to answer this we don't know we don't know well, Peter comes to their rescue, opens his mouth, and for once in his life, God fills his mouth. <laughs> you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is jubilant. Congratulations, Peter, how clever you are. You worked this out for yourself. No. You're blessed because the Father has revealed to you who I am. How amazing. That's the only way to come. By revelation. Now there are reasons for our hope. And for our faith. We can point to reasons why we believe what we believe. But faith is a supernatural thing. It takes the revelation of God. Remember that because you depend on revelation every day of your life. And when you're sharing your faith with people, remember, you, ca you can't go faster than the Holy Spirit is going in their lives. And you must leave room for people to come to the place where they examine what you're saying and God speaks to their hearts. So my first point is this. Our faith is founded on revelation. Not reason, but revelation. Don't misunderstand me. Our faith is reasonable. One of the early church fathers said, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not because I look at it directly, but by it I see everything else. Our faith is reasonable, but it's not founded on human reason. It's not founded on human understanding. It's founded on revelation. Whatever else Jesus meant when he turned to Peter and said, you, Peter, Stone, are uh, on, you, on, on this, I'm going to build my church. Whatever else it means, and of course, even as Protestants, we must recognize that probably Jesus was indicating that Peter would have a prominent role. No evidence that this made him the first pope, but a prominent role. Peter and Paul, the two most prominent apostles in the New Testament. But it was more than that. Jesus said, at last you have something now that you can see that I can use upon which to build my church. Not you, Peter. Would you build anything on Peter? Would you build anything on human, human, human being? No, 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 no. Peter, what you have said is a rock-like revelation. And I will build my church on this. It depends on revelation. It rests on revelation. It's founded on revelation, particularly revelation concerning Jesus. Because there is no other foundation that man can lay other than the foundation that God has laid. And his name is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone of your life. So it is about revelation. Now... This is important for us because some people may ask, well, actually, how can you be so sure that God has revealed himself? Just, just apply a little bit of common sense here. If we believe that God created the world, if we believe that God created humanity, made us in his image with a capacity for a relationship, if we believe he's a God of love, a lot of people believe that, if he's a God of love, then surely he wants to communicate with us. He didn't have to. And if he didn't, we'd be lost. But he does want to and has done because he wants relationship with us. 
And so revelation is a very reasonable thing. Once you've come to believe that God exists, that he would reveal himself is very, very reasonable. But it's not just about how we begin the Christian life by recognizing that there is a foundation which is going to be the support for our life, an enduring support, a lasting support, an eternal support, a cornerstone from which we take the shape of our lives that defines everything about us, our purpose, our dreams, our ambitions. Not only that, but every day of our life we have to depend on the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Revelation is seeing things the way God sees them because he shows you. The highest form of revelation is God incarnate in Christ. We take everything from him. But the witness and testimony to him, both the Old Testament prophetically looking forward and the New Testament in explaining the gospel is also revelation. That's why not any day is complete without you dipping into the revelation of God and having your thinking and your mind enlightened. And it's not just a book. It's a living relationship with the Holy Spirit who wrote the book. Now, let me just explain this to you in, in, in a way which I'm sure many, many people will find very relevant. Probably, probably most of us, if not all of us today, are needing some direction in one way or another. How, how are we supposed to live? Choices are coming our way and sometimes these are very practical choices about jobs and employment and, and, and accommodation and so on. But even in this, we need the revelation of God. We want God's guidance. Some of you might be facing very difficult decisions. Decisions which could be the defining moment of your life. Set you in a direction for years to come and you want to get it right. Use all of your critical faculties that God has given you. Don't just uh, say, well, I'll throw the fish and chips over the wall. And if they come back again, then, then God tells me to do whatever. Don't be a crazy charismaniac. God has given us brains. Amen and amen. Some more than others, but use whatever you've got. But mere human reasoning, if you incline to your own understanding, God is not directing your paths. You commit everything to him. You trust in him. And you let him lead you and guide you. Revelation, or at least illumination and direction. How important it is. Especially in these days to get a new and fresh revelation of Jesus. And I think that one of the keys for where we are as a church and as a generation of people in the 21st century is to retrace the steps the disciples made. Here's the thing. We come to Jesus with all the great confessions, very, very easy. We're taught in Sunday school, or it's very easy. You can't pass one Sunday here without realizing that we line up with the great creeds and confessions of the faith, of history, of Christian thinking, or the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and our hymns are saturated with these great confessions. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the creator of the universe, and so on. But we forget in the heart of some of that is talking about believing that God came into history suffered under Pontius Pilate and so forth. Jesus was born in the era of Caesar Augustus. He was crucified in, the, in Caesar's successor in Tiberius. And this city of Caesarea has all of that history. Herod the Great called it Caesarea, dedicated a temple to Caesar Augustus. Herod's son, Philip, Afterwards, after Herod the Great's death, renamed it after Tiberius. So it was all to do with, uh, with the history of the time. This locates everything in history. So our faith is founded on revelation. That's the bedrock. But it is rooted in history, which makes it testable and if it is tested and we find it to be true, then it is real. That's the reality that's missing. Why? I'm not being critical. We are in an environment that pushes our faith to the margins of society 
as if all religious statements are only a matter of opinion. By definition, it's all about faith, not about facts. It's what you believe, what your opinion is. What you believe is your business, but don't think for one moment that what you believe as a religious person has any foundation in fact. And in that environment, we're timid because we say people are just going to say that's your opinion. And, but we need to let people know that our faith does not rest on opinion, certainly not human opinions. Our faith is founded on God's revelation and is verifiable through history because it's also rooted in history. It actually happened. God came. Jesus lived. He said what he said. We can have very strong confidence even simply by looking at the reasons why we can trust the Bible, even before we start talking about spiritual faith. An accurate record, no other explanation, historically fits the facts as we know them. Why would it be that a generation of eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus would go away and within a generation make up stories totally opposite to the truth? No, they knew that their faith rested on those facts. Jesus has come. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He actually died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. We saw him afterwards. These are facts. They believed them. And there's only one explanation for resurrection faith, and that's resurrection fact. Another seal of proof of that is nobody is prepared to die for what they just made up. You can die for something that is not true if you believe it enough, because it's your faith. People today will go into suicide bombings simply because they believe that they get a straight access to paradise. They are sincere in their belief, but sincerely wrong. What a shock comes to them beyond the grave. So we can die for things that are wrong, but we believe them to be right. Nobody in their right mind would die for something they just made up. I reckon it would be something like this. Oh, they're the early apostles. And there they are about to put to death. Oh, wait, hold it, hold it, hold it. One minute. We were just kidding. <laughs> Don't kill us. We made it all up. You made it all up? Yeah, we made it all up. No. They died believing what they had preached because they had witnessed it and they knew it to be true. And if it was true for those people, it's true for everybody today. It's rooted in history. Now, one of the problems is that these early believers come, come at it from a different perspective. So you see, they, they had no problem believing that Jesus was a real man. No, no problem. The evidence was very, very clear. That was their presupposition. They didn't even question it. Of course, Jesus was real. He was a man. And they began to see he was quite extraordinary. Stories about his birth and miracles and so on. And so their constant question was, who exactly is he? Remember one occasion, they said, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. There's something happening here that's more than meets the eye. And so they were beginning to discover stuff about Jesus that began to force them to look at Jesus differently so that by the time the Gospels were written, they were able to say that he is the Son of God, not just as a messianic title, but as a reality of who he was, which in our definition, later on the church began to define this and said that makes him the second person of the Trinity. I guess that's so. And the Holy Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity. So in the fourth century, that stuff was written down and defined more clearly, but it's all here in the Bible. Okay, now they came gradually to understand who Jesus was as the Son of God and as this uh, second person of the Trinity, so that John could write, in the beginning was the Word, second person, and the Word was with God, first person, and he was in the beginning with God, and so on, uh, and the Word was God, so it's clear by then. But you see, not, not at this time, when Peter made this confession, son of God, I'm not so sure he exactly understood the depths of it. 
Now, for us, we can define, you know, what Son of God means. He means he's God. That's, that's clear to us. But we find it difficult to identify with the real historical Jesus. Therefore, the temptation in our mind is to dismiss it as not that real, just a religious idea. And I think if we can bridge that gap and become radical disciples of the real Jesus, recognizing that he really came, he really lived, these things actually happened, and see the historical evidence that points in that direction, we will be well on the way to give a good reason for the hope that is within us. Amen and amen. Amen. Now, why this is important? I'm laboring this point because if it's fact, it's public fact. I mean, true for everybody. Not just truth for you, another truth for the Buddhists, another truth for this person, another truth for that person. No, no, no. If Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, then he is real and it's true for everybody. And we all have to face the question, who do we think he is? And it's important because we've been pushed to the margins. Now, let me explain what's happening. Two things are happening in our society today, our culture. Our culture is increasingly intolerant of public confession of Christ and wants that to be kept private, the privatization of religion. And in fact, it's worse than that. It's the ABC philosophy, anything but Christian. All right. Then minority groups are given much more freedom and much more respect. One can understand the idea that we take care of minority groups. They shouldn't be persecuted minority. But I think there's a lot of anti-Christian promotion of other religions. Case in point is the story of a Christian health worker and occupational therapist, Victoria Westerny. In 2014, she was found guilty of harassing and bullying her colleague, a colleague was a Muslim woman, and she was accused of grooming, grooming her colleague. Imagine that horrible words, harassment, bullying, and grooming. Grooming, they would liken to grooming. You know what, that has another context altogether. And the story, the, the situation was this, was that Victoria, good friends with this Muslim lady, and they were working together on some co-belligerence, meaning... Muslims and Christians can fight together for certain things that they agree about in society. And then they suddenly got more friendly and Victoria offered her a book to read. It's a book about a Muslim woman who found oppressive Islam so hurtful and destructive for her as a woman. And through many, many experiences, she came to know God. And the story of her book is... I dared to call him father. And so Victoria thought, this is a good book for my friend to read. Offered to pray for her and invited her to a service. Well, she complained. And Victoria, for nine months, was suspended from work and received a written warning, harassing and bullying. She tried to defend herself before the Employment Appeal Tribunal. The basis of her defense was that the convention on human rights provides the right for every person to have freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, and freedom of religion, and also freedom to manifest religious beliefs. And our religious belief is that Jesus says, go and make me known. I may be courageous, stand up, preach the gospel, but use wisdom. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. The employment tribunal made a distinction Think think how serious this is. A distinction between simply manifesting a religious belief and improperly manifesting a religious belief. So who tells the difference between simply doing it and doing it improperly? Who's the arbiter there? Anybody that complains? This is designed to be a dampening effect on you people to preach the gospel at work. Now, you're probably going to want to do less after hearing that story. That are we followers of Jesus or not? Are we prepared to live for him, die for him, lose our jobs for him? Yes, it's easy to say, all right? And I acknowledge it's easy to say. I can preach about this. I get strong amens. 
when you have to go through it, be wise. Be wise. Okay. So we have to understand that if Jesus is true and real, and we need to be convinced of that by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but also be able to offer reasons so that we can demonstrate and back up what we believe. So our faith is founded on revelation, not founded on digging around some Palestinian grave to bring a few fragments of this document and that document. Our faith is founded on the revelation. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, God who caused the light to shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it rests on the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But our faith is also reasonable. It's rooted in history. It's testable. Finally, our faith calls for a complete revolution in our thinking. This is what Peter had to discover. When he said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, Son of the living God... Christ simply means messianic king, the Jewish Messiah. And son of God at this time was used as a messianic title. Scholars debated that for a long time until the Dead Sea Scrolls came along and they found that, yes, son of God was a messianic title at the time of Jesus. So in all probability, Peter thought, yes, he is the Christ, he's the son of God, it's the same thing, different title, he's the Christ, the son of God. He had no idea that this implied deity hadn't reflected enough. His mind hadn't been renewed enough. And he's probably just thinking he's the Jewish Messiah and probably then slotting Jesus into Peter's opinion of what the Messiah would do. In common with most of the Jews at that time, they thought that Messiah, when he finally showed up, would be nothing more than a religious political figure who'd lead a revolution against Rome, and so Jews would be independent again, and the great days of King David would be restored. They would be free. It was about national political freedom. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 I've not come uh, to take your side. I've not come to take any sides. I've come to take over. And actually, in the first instance, the result of the Messiah coming to Israel was the sealing of Israel's judgment of that generation. All God's promises to Israel, indeed every nation, is going to be fulfilled. But at that time, the Messiah pronounced a judgment over Israel. Not one stone will be laid upon another, Jesus spoke of the temple. He prophesied of the destruction of temple. He prophesied Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. All this happened in A.D. 70 under Titus. It happened in history. Jesus warned them. Warned them, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, and now it's going to be very difficult for you. You're going to go through this time of judgment. And this was the doing of Jewish Messiah. It's not easy to stomach, especially if you're a Jew today. But the Jewish Messiah pronounced a judgment, first of all, upon Israel. And this was the coming of the kingdom. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? One of those rare moments when Jesus' identity and glory of heaven shone through and he was transformed, transfigured and shone with a glorious light and Peter, James and John were there. And afterwards Jesus said, there are some amongst us now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom coming in power. What did he mean? The kingdom was demonstrated in power on the resurrection. That's too soon, not taste death. Oh, the kingdom is going to be manifested in power when Jesus returns again. That's too long away, too far away. And I believe a very consistent understanding of what Jesus says is that the kingdom was revealed in power in AD 70 when God's rule brought, first of all, judgment to Israel. And that same judgment will be upon the nations of the world. Thank God we can call upon Jesus 
for our salvation. So Peter had to understand this, and no wonder when Jesus started talking immediately about the Son of Man must suffer, and be betrayed, and be crucified, but on the third day he will rise again from the dead. Peter never even heard the resurrection. He just heard suffering. No, 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 Lord. No, no, no. Listen, let's sort. No, no, this will never happen to you. And Jesus spoke so sternly to him. Whereas before you were speaking the words of the Father, seeing things the way God sees them. Now you're seeing things the way humans look at them. And worse than that, you're speaking the very words of the devil himself. Get behind me, Satan. What's wrong? Let's have some mercy on poor old Peter. What's what's gone wrong? You see, he has not yet received a revolution in his thinking. It's a gradual process. He's still thinking humanly. He's not seeing everything the way God sees it. He is thinking according to his culture, his tradition, his personality, his own theology, which was inadequate. And why I say let's be merciful to Peter because we have to be merciful to ourselves. Isn't that your problem today as much as it's my problem? That kind of in my mind I want a Jesus who will meet me at my point of need, fulfill my desires and make life work for me the way I would like it. You can translate everything that Peter said into this. No, no, Jesus, that's not the kind of Messiah I want. What I want is right now national independence, and I want to be part of that movement so that I can experience the liberation of my own nation. Jesus, I've got bigger plans than that. You don't know that the kingdom is not just for one nation. It's for all nations, and you don't know. You think the enemy is Rome. I've come to fight an enemy far more important than that. I have come to overcome evil itself. And that's why I have to go to the cross. Jesus is very careful. He even avoids, you can see it, he avoids the use of the term Christ, Messiah, because people are going to automatically think along a certain pattern, which wasn't his mission. So he, full of Old Testament revelation, speaks about the Son of Man, Daniel 7, a glorious heavenly figure, the Son of Man coming down from heaven, and then begins to speak about a suffering Son of Man to show that the way the kingdom would come, the way Messiah would rule, the way Messiah would defeat enemies and pay the price for sin and set us free was through the cross totally founded on Old Testament revelation, but not part of messianic thinking in Jesus' day. So, poor old Peter has to go through the process. And I think very largely one of the reasons why Peter found this so unpalatable is the same reason you and I would back away from it. And that is, if Jesus had to go to the cross and we are followers of him, then suffering is on the agenda. I would like this, you know, automatically I want to go and be a nice, nice pastor and say something sweet and, and, and forget this. I can't. I've got to tell you. Suffering is always on the agenda of those in the kingdom. By tribulation we enter the kingdom. And suffering is coming thicker and faster than ever before. Our brothers and sisters in China. Our brothers and sisters in Syria. Right across every nation where Islam has authority. Christians are suffering. And it's not just Islam. It's the same for militant Hinduism. And also militant Judaism. Persecution never more rife than it is today. And I don't know what you would call what happened to Victoria. Persecution. It's not suffering unto death. But she was certainly publicly humiliated. And we have to say, God, I'm going to follow the crucified Christ. 
because I know after crucifixion comes resurrection and we are on the winning side. We are on the victory side. And anyway, if he is the Messiah and I build my life on him and I build my life on a crucified, resurrected savior, then I know that crucifixion and resurrection, not necessarily literally, is my portion. And so I take Jesus as the cornerstone of my life. That means three things for us. It means you build your life on a foundation. You build your life on it. Remember Jesus, hear these sayings of mine and does them like a man who builds his house on a strong foundation. We build our life on Jesus. We depend on him. But when you build your life on a foundation, you shape your life around that foundation. In other words, he shapes your life. You build your life on him and he shapes your life. And, and, and that means you're thinking as well. And you have this ambition by the Holy Spirit that your mind is revolutionized and you think the way God thinks and you begin to see the way God sees it and you say, Jesus, be to me whoever you call or you, you, you are and I will not try to, to shape you after my thinking. I want my thinking to be shaped after you even if I am ridiculed, rubbished and rejected. I don't think we have to be kind of obnoxious out there but and we got to call our society back to the values of the gospel which our society was in one way or another built on and if we have that removed God help the western civilization our civilization is built on gospel principles that we're made in the image of God just take that away for one moment no image look at societies that don't have that Cruel societies in many ways, enlightened in many other ways. But if we allow our society to move away from the foundation of the gospel, then we are in a bigger mess than we are now. It's time for us to stand up and to be counted and to build our life on the reality of who Jesus is and let him shape our lives. And when you do that, you will not be ashamed to stand up for what you believe demonstrated to others by the way you live and the way you act, both in private and in public, with wisdom, with wisdom. The Holy Spirit will give you enough wisdom. And if you know you're moving in the Holy Spirit and you lose your job, you lose your life, God will be glorified. But if you're foolish and a crazy charismaniac or whatever, then you deserve all you get, all right? So we need wisdom. And the same Peter, who passed through all that we're talking about, even to the point of giving his life for Jesus, had come to the place where he fully understood why Messiah had to die. And he fully understood what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God. But he also said, don't just say it. Give people a reason for the hope is in you that is in you rediscovering Jesus rests on the revelation of who he is that's the foundation however it is rooted in history and it must lead to a total revolution of our thinking and of our living in Jesus name amen, amen.